Next Chapter Podcasts. Next Chapter Podcasts. Hi, welcome back to How I Got Greenlit. I'm Alex Collegian. This is my co-host, Ryan Gibson. Hey, everybody. We're here for part two of our amazing conversation with Chap Taylor, noted screenwriter of Changing Lanes and many other amazing film and television projects. If you were there for part one, we got a real flavor of what a incredible life Chap led before he found film. And we kind of started building to his big break of making Changing Lanes. And we're going to get into that right now. Also, we're going to cover The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, which is the movie that he brought, which we call our B-side, a film by a famous director, in this case, John Ford, maybe something you haven't heard of. Usually people go with The Searchers and things like that. How are you doing today, Ryan? I'm fine, Alex. Thanks for asking. <laughs> okay. So without further ado... When Liberty Valance rode to town, the women folk would hide, they'd hide. When Liberty Valance walked around, the men would step aside. So, Chap, you basically wrote a spec that became Changing Lanes, and then it took five years for that to happen. What was happening in between those? I wrote a spec they didn't buy. They didn't buy. But off of that, Rudin asked, Rudin told Paramount to give me a blind deal. And working with Craig Perry, we ultimately came up with a story that became Changing Lanes. And then I went away and wrote it. It took me about nine months. And the deal was so insignificant to everyone involved except me that I think that they completely forgot that I was writing. I don't think that it appeared on anyone's radar. And so when I showed up nine months later with this script, in this particular instance, I think it worked in my favor in that I just showed up and handed them a script that I've been working on for nine months, and um, they thought they thought it was pretty good. And it came out of the blue, and there and over exceeded expectations because they didn't have any. And then I turned in a draft, my final draft, and you know it sat there. It, it took a while to get made. It, the movie hit theaters probably five years, almost exactly five years after I turned in my final draft. But in the meantime, having to answer your question, having now done a job for a studio that turned out pretty well, that script that I wrote, which was the original script for, for Changing Lanes, got me a lot of work. And at that time, the way it worked is, you know, if you had agents who represented you or who believed in you, you, you were a beginning writer, you know, they would beat the bushes and they would go out and call people and try and get them to read your material. You know, if you had a hot piece of material, if you had a script that you know, kind of spoke to people or that impressed people or that for whatever reason was kind of the flavor of that month, then it would open doors to potentially get you in the room to, to pitch yourself to, to do assignments for, for studios. And that's, and that's exactly what, I, what happened to me. So talk about uh, Jeff Robinoff a little bit. For people who don't know, he ran uh, Warner Brothers for, gosh, like a, almost, what, five, 10 years, a long run. Jeff Robinoff was an agent in ICM when ICM was dominant? When ICM was the number two agency, um, they were second behind CAA. And, you know, however people keep score of those things. And Robinoff, uh, I was probably his mm -hmm. least important client. He represented the Hughes brothers, and he represented uh, Chris McQuarrie, and he represented a bunch of other people. Uh, the Wachowskis, probably, I should mention. And he got a job. He left ICM. He didn't want to be an agent anymore. And he got a job as a, as a vice president at Warner Brothers. And he worked, he's a, Jeff is a very, very smart, very driven man. Uh, he was at the time. Very directed, very, you know, not a, not a lot of tender loving care, but, but a very smart man with very good taste, which is not always the case of agents, no offense. He brought his clients in and, and he was the guy who, who you know, got, got the Matrix done at, uh, at Warner Brothers. And obviously that carried a lot of weight there. And then he became president of production and he became head of the whole studio. And then, you know, that lasted until it didn't because it's studio politics. Uh, and now he has his own 
uh, you know, an independent production and financing company called Studio Eight. Very cool. I'm just, fa- I'm, you know, just fascinated by the story. I, I feel, I still feel like we're, I guess what you're saying, Chap, is that you had, you know, you spent time writing this script that eventually became Changing Lanes. And in the meantime, you were able to uh, get, you know, writing work. So you were working, you would say you were a working writer. How old were you when you were sitting in a chair and Scott Rudin came back from lunch? How old were you when that happened? Yeah, mid, mid-20s. And were you... Were you shocked when Scott Root asked to read my script? Yeah. Said, let me read it and, and actually got back to you. By the way, as we're saying things that don't exist anymore, I'm not sure that exists anymore. Dumbfounded <laughs> would really be more accurate than shocked. Uh, dumbfounded and. Yeah. How oh, those things happen? I mean, Craig had similar bizarre stories. I mean, in fact, that seems to be the through line. Luck is it, always a part of it. There's always the right, right place. Right yeah, and time. if I could, yeah. you know, speaking to the, to the to the audience, the people who are perhaps trying to put their career together, um, you can't you can't manufacture those moments of luck, right? That that's called luck for a reason. But the good news is this: like, and I know that this is true even now. There's now the advantage if you're if you're trying to. If I was trying to become a screenwriter today, first off, I'd probably do something else. But if I was trying to become a screenwriter today, the good news is there are a lot more, lot more contests, the internet, there's, there's a lot more channels to get your work noted. The good news right, is right. people then and people now are always, they want your work to be good. In fact, when I was at NYU, and I know Alex probably had, a, I had an internship with a producer named Nancy Tenenbaum, who produced Sex, Lies, and Videotape, obviously a big independent movie for Steven Soderbergh. And uh, one, of the, one of the advantages of going to a film school is that they generally have relationships with producers and with production companies. My roommate had got an internship uh, you know, at David Brown's company. I think he had actually had an internship at Scott Rudin's company. But my point being, part of my job as an intern was just to read scripts that you talking about Justin? Yeah, Justin. It was yeah. it was with David Brown. Yeah, David Brown. Yeah, Mister of Jaws and many other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that was an obviously an advantage. And I read the scripts that were coming in to to Nancy Tenenbaum, and they were from the William Morris Agency and ICM and CAA, which were the big biggest agencies at the time. And a lot of them, frankly, were not all that good. And it gave me confidence that I could that I could do better. I think also to the point though, is, you know, there are a lot of, there could have been people that were sitting in that seat when, you know, Mr. Rudin sat down, came back from lunch and said, said, what did you do this weekend? And you said, I worked on my, you know, I wrote this weekend. And there are a lot of people who say that the fact is that you were, and you did, and you had something and you actually were able to physically give him something. It wasn't just a line. Like you were committed to being a writer at that point in time, you know, even without, any prospect of, of a future in writing, yeah. you were doing, you were actively writing and you had something to hand over when that time, you know, what is luck? They, the, when preparation meets perspiration, yeah, something like that. Yeah. Going back to the, something I said earlier, you know, as I said, the thing, the, the good news about being a writer, the one advantage, there's two advantages to being a screenwriter in this business. One is that other people pay for your lunch. Uh, that's a rule in Hollywood. Someone else pays for the writer's lunch. And uh, the second thing is no one controls what you, you can write anytime you want, as much as you want. And so if you want to be a writer, you should be writing all the time forever. Like whatever time you can find around your other life responsibilities and you should carve, you should shape as much as is possible, shape your life responsibilities to give yourself a period of time every day to write. You should always be writing, whether anyone is paying you for it or not. If you're not actually writing a script, you should be thinking about what your next idea is. You should be going to the movies. You should be reading books. You should just always be in preparation or execution or editing of writing. Because if you're going to be a writer, that's what you need to do. It's no different than if you're going to play professional sports. If you're not on the court, you're in the gym. If you're not in the gym, you're watching tape. It's just the way it is. You're eating right. You're always training yourself or, or preparing yourself to play football or whatever your sport is. Same, same exact thing. Right. You should always be writing. Because it's the only way that you get better. And then, God willing, if you have that opportunity, you will be prepared. Once you hit that, that sweet spot, you got 
you know, you're doing it right. You're doing the work yourself. You're doing what you can control. Was there any experiences? So you're, you're in, you make that first check for writing. You know, what, what was the moment when, let's say you, you're writing, you're starting to get work, you're starting to get some positive feedback from the world. When was the moment when you were able to maybe give up the, the day job or the side gig to become a fully sort of like uh, a full-fledged screenwriter that that's your, your job? I quit working as a PA when I got the job, when I got the blind deal to do Changing Lanes or what became Changing Lanes. You never looked back. From then on, that was your profession. Yeah, I, that's how I've done it ever since. And, you know... It was absolutely a leap of faith. Again, as I said earlier, I've been blessed my entire career by uh, profound ignorance. Now that I'm old and let's say wiser, you know, I, I took a lot of leaps of faith that young men take that maybe older men and women don't. So when I got that job, I'm like, okay, I'm a writer now. And uh, I collected unemployment for a little bit. And then I was a writer. And uh, that was it. And that was the dogs at your door moment to work a little bit harder and try to stay in that position or? Yeah, I never had a plan B. Uh, I, uh, I just was on the tightrope and that's, and that's, and I just kept juggling. Uh, and, and I was fortunate enough that while I was working on changing lanes, I also had a movie made. Uh, I told you, remember that, about that I had written a spec, an action spec, and this is, I'll really date myself now. It was Die Hard in a Las Vegas casino back when there was, when everything was a Die Hard. And uh, <laughs> kids back in the, you know, back in the oldie times, You'd everything was a Die Hard. Die Hard in the summer. Die Hard in a, die hard in, in a hot air balloon. Die Hard in a, you know, in a phone booth. And uh, you, this was... You did Die Hard in a building. I that did. Was, came I know, original. Yeah, it was original. They actually did do Die Hard in a phone booth too. It was called Phone That's Booth. Right. Yeah, it was called Phone Booth. See there? But there no, you go. This is Joel a, Schumacher. This is it a wasn't great diehard. Story. Yeah, it wasn't diehard. But this is a great story because you had written a script, but then Sino built around that time that had a, a roller coaster. It was some sort of the latest, greatest, tallest thing. So we wrote the script and, and Paramount did not buy it. And my agent, who was Jeff Robinoff. So there's, there's these guys. The guys' names are Avi Lerner and Ely Samaha. Avi Lerner is still a producer. LRM. He runs a company called Millennium. He makes the Expendables movies now. He's been in the business forever. He is an Israeli gentleman. And then there was this guy named Eli Samaha. Eli Samaha was a Lebanese Christian who had emigrated to New York. And it's kind of not clear what he did in New York, but somehow he was in the nightclub business. And then he had come to Los Angeles and he had, of all things, got into the dry cleaner business with his brother, Dimitri. And they found a niche in that. I think that their niche was that they would do overnight dry cleaning. So the studio, they got a gig with the studios. They could bring the costumes and things in at 6 p.m. or 8 p.m. And, and Ely's dry cleaners would clean them overnight and deliver them back to the set to the studios 6 a.m. or whatever. And now he's in show business. Well, he so he ended up with like 10 dry cleaners and then being a smart businessman, which to a degree he was, he recognized that the real estate that the dry cleaners were sitting on was more valuable than the dry cleaning business. And he turned some of them into nightclubs. And being in nightclubs, he then rubbed shoulders or other body parts with kind of all of the B and C list actors that were big at that time, like the Jean-Claude Van Dams of the world. And off of that, he basically made himself a producer based on his access to these people. And so Avi, who at the time was mostly in the kind of schlock, straight to video action picture business, which was a thing then. And he would make 10 movies a year at $5 million budgets, which he would cover from foreign pre-sales. And that'll be a different episode. But he would make the movies for four and a half million bucks and keep the extra half million. And so he made 5 million a year and he didn't really give a fuck what the movies did. Ely was going to be his low budget division, believe it or not. And so they got a hold of this script and they decided that they were going to make it. And I got a phone call one day from these two guys, you know, with dueling accents that sounded very strange to me because one was Israeli and one was Lebanese and they spoke with the accents of their homelands. And they basically told me they were the greatest producers in the world. They were going to make my movie. And ICM negotiated a deal and they put this movie together. 
and it was called Top of the World. It is called Top of the World because you could find it somewhere. And it starred Peter Weller, RoboCop, and it featured Dennis Hopper and Tia Carrere, who was at that time Mrs. Ely Samaha, and Carrie Tagawa, and a bunch of other, uh, um, uh, Joey Pants, Joe Pantoliano was there. And it went from being, you know, a epic movie in a giant Las Vegas casino to being shot state line Nevada. It looked like it was shot mostly on Friday afternoon at about 4.30. And what I think he did was he, he basically promised these guys like 50 grand in chips each at the casino he controlled to be in the movie. And that's what it looks like. <laughs> but it was a movie and it got made and I got paid. And yeah. then, <laughs> and then the, the time came you know, they have to show you under the writer's guild, they, they, they have to show you. Uh, and because I had done this deal with Paramount, I was in the writer's guild. Very important because they had to then, if they wanted the script, which they did, they had to execute it in accord with the, with the specification. The writer's guild had to be a signatory, which they didn't really want to do, but they did it. And so under those regulations, they had to show me a copy of the movie before they determined credits. And so they sent me a copy of the VHS because again, this is a million years ago. And the movie was truly terrible and took my name off it. Well, what that means is you have to come up with a pseudonym, right? You can't, it isn't going to just be blank. You have to agree on what fake name will replace your real name. So my friend of mine had- e, Correct. That's the, that's the well, director's just, guild. Yeah. So, so just so everybody knows, yes. So that happens periodically. If you ever see a movie directed by a name, Alan Smithy with two E's, yeah. that is the usual go-to that a director has removed their name from the picture. So what was yours, chap? Something, something equally clever? Well, yeah, you have, in the, under the writer's guild, you have, to, you have to agree. You and the production company, at least at the time, you have to agree what it's going to be. So I had a friend who had just had a, a, a son and his last name was Freed and his son's name was Noah. So I said, okay, make it Noah Freed. And Avi Lerner, who was an Israeli arms dealer, told me that it was too Jewish. So I said, okay. He, made, he sold his movies overseas. He sold them in territories where he felt they, that, that the Israelis and Jews were not popular, and this was too Jewish a name. So it couldn't be Noah Freed. So Craig Perry suggested, hey, would you blow me? Now, English is not Avi's first language. Hebrew is. And so uh, that got very close to getting through. And they caught it. A lawyer caught it at the last minute. And uh, Avi called up my, my <laughs> lawyer at the time and said something like, oh, so, you know, this chap Taylor said he thinks he's a funny man. He's a sense of humor. Hey, would you blow me? I get it. Blow me. I get it. And uh, was that Jeff Frankel? Your attorney? yeah, it was Jeff Frankel. Uh, oh boy, hopefully, yeah. hopefully a future guest. Uh, yeah, our, our, both of our former lawyer, the yeah. inimitable Jeff Frankel. Yeah, yeah, very successful lawyer. And um, so ultimately, my pseudonym, and you can find him today on IMDb, was Bart Madison. Bart for Bart Simpson, and Madison was my mother-in-law's dog at the time. Bart <laughs> Madison wrote a movie called Top of the World, and I still. Occasionally get a six hundred dollar check from from television in Thailand, yeah, for Top of the World. Top of the World. Any Dennis Hopper stories, or were you nowhere near that? Uh, I was I was in Vegas. I was in Nevada for a short period of time. I had nothing to do with any of them, uh, other than you know the direct. It was the direct because again, this is the mid nineties, so there was a last kind of a last gasp of guys who had been in the business for decades. So the director was a man named Sidney J. Fury, who had been like a hot studio director in the 60s. He had done The Naked Runner with Sinatra. He had done a movie with Brando. He had done a movie with uh, Robert Redford. And then he, you know, ended up doing the Iron Eagle movies, like 17 Iron Eagle movies with Lou Gossett Jr. Right. And uh, and he directed this movie. And he was already kind of semi-retired. He could work, you know, X amount of days to keep his pension. And that's what he did. The stunt coordinator had done John Ford Westerns, told some John Wayne stories. If, it was not, if nothing else, for, for a kid like me who grew up in old movies, I got a lot of stories out of it. Did you get a Sidney Fury story? Did you get like a Sinatra, any sort of the old? Yeah, there was, he had some pretty, Sinatra had treated him pretty, and I was, a, as you know, I was a big Sinatra fan at the time. Still am a big Sinatra fan, but Sinatra had treated him very badly, and uh, he was not he, he was not a Sinatra fan. He had still, he kind of got the bad friend. Wow. Yeah, he was still no, he was still scarred. Like like thirty years later, he was still traumatized. Uh, Probably liked him before it went bad. Oh, I'm sure he was. Yeah, uh, I think yeah. Whatever, because who's whatever not a Sinatra bad, fan? Yeah, 
he got the bad Frank and the bad Frank had, had done a number on it. Yeah. So it's funny you say that. I was just, I just tried to watch Robin Hood and this, uh, Robin and the Seven Hoods. Yeah, Robbo and the Seven Hoods. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Talk about an excuse to just sit around and screw around with your friends. Yeah. Truly the cannonball run of, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Rosary bleeds. Rosary were involved. Bleeds. Um, well that's, uh, that is a, Great story. Avi Lerner still exists. He's still out there operating yep. with impunity. With, do, yeah. is, that, is there a doc? There's a doc about him, isn't there? Uh, there was one about the boys, uh, Mario Kassar, and Yeah, yeah, the Cannon guys, which were in that same ilk. A very yeah. interesting group of self-made, you know, quote unquote, usually foreign, usually big outsized personalities that took advantage of that business model of the foreign pre-sales phenomenon in independent film genre stuff that you make a poster and you make a cool name and you attach, like you said, a Dolph Lundgren type character and you're off to the races if you keep it below 5 million. And that's what pretty much all the 80s and 90s action movies that I saw every one of were based on, right? By the way, the, the box art for Top of the World is fantastic. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you got a helicopter, right? We didn't have a helicopter in the movie, but they have one on the no poster. Every, everyone needs to. I, I almost feel it, it's, a necess, it's a necessity to see if I can see that. I Well, I, I've i known you a long time and I've never seen it. I think because you told me not to, because I, I always try to support my You, you want to know the truth? The truth is that Peter Weller is an awful human being and Peter Weller <laughs> had a side a like a a hanger on who rewrote the entire script in return for playing like casino robber number two yeah and uh and it was awful and uh the, you know it was awful I don't and that was that and that, that, was, was, that was the end of it yeah and he was a star at the time he was like the name in that film he was the name. They financed it off of him. I remember that he got paid $1.1 million because he wanted to have $1 million after he paid his commission to ICM. And I also remember that he was very pleased with himself. He had done like three, three RoboCop movies and he had kept all the money. Like he lived a very frugal life. He did not have a family and he put all that money in the bank and he was very pleased with himself because of that. So you did you did the Alpha and Omega of your time, which was a pretty well received, critically acclaimed. It was I remember it made like a lot of editorials changing lanes, going back to changing lanes. Like that made a real cultural impact, I think. Well, because it would it had a certain um friction baked into the plot and the and the characters but wasn't at one time that was supposed to be like Pacino or somebody like wh what were the sort of the dream cast that was bounced around before you ended up with Ben Affleck and Sam Jackson uh who I think were both great and I and I I thought they were fan I mean it's, oh, a, it's, good it's like a modern classic like I it, it well, really it's kind of, it's and I mean it was Jackson's first like I think lead right I mean that was before Die Hard 3 that was when he was doing like Jungle Fever no because I worked on Die Hard 3 he had done Die Hard 3 before Oh, you were like, hey, man, remember me? I got you coffee. No. <laughs> no. That's, Sam Jackson is not that guy. <laughs> Sam Jackson likes to golf, and he doesn't like people to bother him. By the way, isn't well. Sidney Pollock in Changing Lanes? Yes, he is. Wow, that's a, not, strange, not only that, that's a strange that, connection, isn't it? Is that your move? Sid. Oh, God. No, 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 no. That's was Scott's move. Because Sidney Pollock also acted. He started as an actor. He would, as he was in Michael Clayton, he would... Uh, he would he As usually he played the, eyes wide shut and everything. He else. To, yeah, he, he went to the Meisner School in New York. He, he was a big. He was like a hardcore actor. He was a yeah. He was a real actor, and he he tended to play the same character, but he did it very well. And uh, yes, and he was in Changing Lanes, ironically, or or however you want to phrase it. And Ron. not only that, but they came. There's a scene in the movie where they go to the kind of computer hacker, or when Ben Affleck's character goes to a to a guy who can get into the credit bureaus to ruin Sam Jackson's credit and kind of ruin his life. That office, I, I had my writer's office in that same building. It was on the corner of Lafayette and spring. It was kind of an old twenties, Philip Marlowe bank building. And I showed up to work one day and there were all these trucks out there and they were shooting changing lanes. <laughs> you didn't know. I had no idea. No. And I'll tell you here, this you want to pinnacle pinnacle of my career as a writer at the time we lived in a loft on the Brooklyn waterfront in what's now called Dumbo, I could see the FDR from my window. And there's a scene in Changing Lanes Begins with a car accident on the yeah, FDR. Yeah, yeah. 
And I could, it was a Sunday and they stopped traffic on the FDR to shoot that scene. <laughs> and I could window. see from my window <laughs> that I, you know, I, Chap Taylor, has stopped, stopped traffic. traffic on the FDR. Yes, my, remains my singular achievement as a screenwriter. That's right. And once, that's great, man. That is fantastic. And also the fickle nature of like, nobody told you. <laughs> oh, yeah. You just, just happened upon it. Yeah. <laughs> like, you don't shit oh. to tell you. Hey, Chad, by the way, you might want to know that your movie's made. No, it was much more along the lines of, hey, hey, buddy, we're shooting a movie. You got to wait. Gotta really get out of the way, you there. Get out of here, kid. Let's take a short break. Thanks for joining us on How I Got Greenlit. We'll be right back. And we're back. This is a good place to segue into the man who shot Liberty Valance. Yeah. So this is a very personal one for you because, I mean, can we talk about why yeah, you sure. bring this? Yeah. All right. So, you know, Paramount right now, as of this taping, is going through a, let's call it a renaissance. They have new new management and they're dealing with um, trying to resurrect a very august brand that, you know, we all grew up with and, you know, Joe Gillis worked for and everybody else. So Chap was very much a student of film of, of everything. But um, by the way, one of the coolest studios in town, the actual physical, the actual physical studio yeah. is like the art deco and the, mm -hmm. the location in, in Los Angeles where it is. It's just, yeah, it's, a, it's really, really cool. Oh yeah. If you've seen, if you've seen a movie studio in the movies, you have that's probably seen the front gates to Paramount. That's what they shoot. <laughs> right. If that's what it looks, that's what it looks and when like. They the call it, yeah. When they call it a fake name, they use the same kind of Spanish yeah. architecture for yep. the crusty yeah, Lou. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> if it's, yeah, whatever. Monarch Studios. Or if you probably, saw Mank, yeah, it's Paramount. You know, it yeah. feels that way, yeah. So yeah. take us through it. You had an opportunity of going back to the different kind of script business deals that you can get they have an incredible library of past classics that they're interested in maybe updating. Is that right? Paramount obviously has been in business for a century or mo almost a century. And they have a, owned a lot of movies that they made in the past, obviously. Years ago, the writer Terrence Winter, who obviously went on to uh, create Boardwalk Empire and write The Wolf of Wall Street and other things, was working at Paramount. He pitched an idea to Matt Jackson, who at the time was an executive there that he wanted. He loved the movie, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, which is a black and white John Ford Western. It was shot in 61. It was uh, starred John Wayne and, and Lee Marvin and, and Jimmy Stewart. And he had an idea for updating it. And because he uh, became involved in a lot of other things, was unable, to, was unable to, to carry out that assignment. And so that idea hung around for a decade at Paramount. And uh, Matt Jackson transitioned from being an executive there to being an independent producer. He and I have known each other a long time and we were going to do something else that fell through. And I had pitched him an idea. It was an open writing assignment to, to adapt the man who shot Liberty Valance. And they were pretty open. I, they didn't really have an idea on how that was going to look. They just were open to ideas, which sometimes happens. And I had pitched Matt an idea in 2015 that didn't at the time didn't get traction, but then probably two years ago, the stars aligned, which is often how things work in this business. And we went in and, and pitched it to Elizabeth Raposo, who was the president there. And, and she bought it and hired me to write, not a remake, but a kind of a reimagining of the story. And the story is essentially, it's a Western. Jimmy Stewart is a young lawyer who shows up in a little town called Shinbone in an unnamed territory. It's not a state yet. It's on the frontier. And on the way into town, his stagecoach is held up by an outlaw named Liberty Valance. And he's whipped and beaten and all his stuff is stolen. And he has to walk into town, I think literally carrying his law books, which is the only thing he's left with. And um, he is shocked and horrified and indignant to find out that this little town is in the grip of this outlaw. And they are in a state of kind of primitive development. They don't have a railroad. It's not a state yet because of the malign influence of this outlaw and people live in fear and the publisher of the local paper is a drunk. The sheriff's a coward. And the, and the cattlemen the cattle, are sort of manipulating yeah. the land for, they want it open and they want a territory, not a state because they can just operate with impunity. 
what we find out is, yes, that behind Liberty Valance are the local cattle barons who own these enormous expanses of property. And their cattle can go anywhere they want. There are no fences. And they don't want it to be a state. They don't want the rule of law to be instituted. Because if there's a rule of law, then they can be challenged. But if there's no rule of law, then the law comes from the barrel of a gun and they have Liberty Valance. And the only guy who isn't afraid of Liberty Valance, of course, is John Wayne, because he's John Wayne. And he is a small rancher who runs his business on his own and is able to survive in that environment because he's John Wayne. Jimmy Stewart, in a nutshell, embarks in a campaign to bring the rule of law to Shinbone and tries to rally the people to rise up and challenge this kind of rule of violence and fails completely. You know, Liberty Valance and his hoodlums wreck the local paper. They scare the sheriff out of town. And it, finally, Jimmy Stewart, character's name is Randall Stoddard. He has to go out in the street in an old-fashioned gunfight in the face of Liberty Valance. And he's going to fucking die, right? He's a lawyer. He's useless outside of law. He can't ride. He can't shoot. He can't fight. And when the smoke clears, Liberty Valance is dead. And Jimmy Stewart's been winged in the arm. And he becomes famous as the man who shot Liberty Valance. And off of that fame and having liberated this town from you know, from the oppression of, of violence, they nominate him as a delegate to the state convention and then, or to the territorial convention and it becomes a state and he becomes the governor. And the whole movie is told in flashback. The opening of the movie, he returns to Shinbone as an older man with his wife and he's been a governor and a vice president and he's been the ambassador to the UK. And he's returned to Shinbone, which is now a small, developed, but a small town. They have a railroad and a church and a school. Uh, he's come to town for the for the funeral of the town drunk. And no one can understand why this very important and successful politician who got his start as the man who shot Liberty Valance, uh, why he's come to town for this unimportant person's funeral. And what is revealed by the end of the picture is, and then in the flashback, it tells the story of his arrival and meeting John Wayne and meeting Liberty Valance and how all these things develop. And what we learn ultimately is John Wayne was the man who shot Liberty Valance, that John Wayne knew that he could personally survive in the system as it was because he was personally tough enough, but that Jimmy Stewart was right, that for the benefit of everyone else, they needed the rule of law. They needed the law to stand up for people who couldn't stand up for themselves. And there needed to be a church and a school and a railroad. And none of those things were going to happen. People's lives were not going to get better until they were all equal before the law. And that while he could survive, those people couldn't. And so from the shadows, he shot Liberty Valance, who was certainly going to kill Jimmy Stewart. Played by Lee Marvin, by the way. Played, yeah, brilliantly with a cackle and yeah. black leather gloves and a whip. He's, he's brilliant. Yeah. Major horsepower talent in this film. Shot in black and white for some reason in the 60s, but... Yeah. Well, there's a reason we can get into that, too. Well, yeah, yeah, for sure. I just love how Lee Marvin calls everybody, hey, dude, because yeah. that used to be an insult. Hey, dude, what do you think you're doing? Yeah. From what I understand, it was uh, Ford, you know, coming down from his, you know, pretty much glory 20 year amazing run as the preeminent director of westerns and you know bigger budget movies this was i think it was cheaper to shoot in black and white right and exactly he, what, yeah it was one of the last yeah one, one of the last, last narrative features that he made he made some documentaries and he shot another feature after it but maybe did they shot in black and white because it was cheap it was cheap and also he kind of sold it to his principals by saying this isn't going to be one of my usual Monument Valley, like out there in the wilderness for a year kind of deals. We're going to shoot it on the back lot. It'll yep. be easy. Yep. He was getting older. There were reasons for that. Not to mention the fact that both of the principals, specifically Jimmy Stewart, was, eh, what, 20 years too oh, old? Oh, they were both decades. They were, uh, <laughs> he, and, he and Wayne were both young decades older. I'm a young lawyer here on the frontier. Yeah. Like, like 42, dude. Um, and he always, but, he always yeah. played 20 years older than he actually was. Dude. <laughs> right. Well, to finish, to finish the previous thought, the, and this is the, one of the things that, you know, it's, it's about a lot of things. Wayne shoots Liberty Valance. He lets Jimmy Stewart take credit. Even though Jimmy Stewart is the protagonist of the picture, Wayne is the hero because there's really no place for him in this better future. Like little cattle guys like him are probably not going to have a place there. He sees, Jimmy, he yeah. sees it too. He's well, that, he sacrificed himself. Right? Yeah, yeah, Jimmy Stewart's romancing his girl. Like he's hoping to marry the waitress at the diner. Jimmy Stewart and she initially likes the cowboy, but then is interested in the intellectual. Right, well, he teaches her how to read. Like right. Jimmy Stewart yeah. teaches her to be literate, and and she's the wife that he brings back. And the funeral that he's attending, the town drunk is Wayne because Wayne sacrifices himself 
Jimmy Stewart becomes a famous politician. Everyone benefits. I'm, from I'm sorry, wasn't it John Wayne's funeral they were coming back for? That's, that's what I said. That's he, was the town drunk. he was the drunk. He turned into the drunk. Turned into the town drunk. Yeah. Oh, I didn't. I didn't catch the drunk part. I yeah, thought yeah, he was the town drunk. All he owned, they say, all he owned was a pair of boots. Yeah, he and he, so, and he never so he had up his shit he, house because his yeah. house was he, all he just descended into drink after the events of the film. You're yes, saying correct? It's, okay. I, gotcha. I think another big part uh, too, which, uh, and you're probably going to get to this, but the fact that Jimmy Stewart actually, I think, thinks that he killed Liberty Valance until Wayne tells him. Is that, or am I uh, misremembering that? Yes, at the end of the movie, he's not sure whether he wants to serve as they, they've elected him to be the delegate, and he's not sure. And John Wayne has to pull him aside and be like, "Listen, here's what really happened. Yes, you need to do what you do best, and I do what I do best, and that's how we're both going to make this a state, and we're going to make this country grow up and become civilized." And yep. that was the, and that by the way, that was the John that all the best John Ford John Waynes were were that he was the guy in the frontier who was, as we said about Chap earlier, a man's man, right? And um, we needed that guy to eke out uh, a foothold in the wilderness, right? But they're self-aware enough to know that their time is over. Like if you look at today, Red Dead Redemption 2, like that's the theme as well. Like the cars are coming, the trains are coming, the phones and the telegraphs are coming and their their time is up, you know? Even look at... Uh, what was the um, the Peckinpah movie? Um, Wild Bunch. The Wild Bunch. I mean, that yeah. was that theme. Where this is our last. We can't operate like this anymore, guys. We can't rob banks because we can't ride faster than the telegraph. In terms of Wayne's character, yeah, the guys that you need, if they succeed in in pacifying the wilderness, there'll be no place for them. They're they're putting themselves out of a job for the greater good. And and they know it, and that's the that's the hero that's the tragic hero that Wayne played so well. That's the guy in the doorway at the end of the Searchers. He has no place inside. Yes. So once he establishes that foothold for them to to survive and raise families and build cities, yeah. he's still just a wanderer at the end of the day. Yeah, they have no use for him. Yeah, and that that's essentially to me. And this is now tied into all the discussion in New York, like. You know, it's about the cost of progress, about the cost of change, about sacrifices that are necessary to create a better world that might not have a place for us. And what I thought of and what I pitched to Paramount was New York in 1991. New York in 1991 was kind of the last vestige of people, however you want to phrase it, like old New York, classic New York, dirty New York. And it was a free fire zone. David Dinkins was the mayor. There were riots in Crown Heights. Over 2,000 murders a year. It was a dangerous, dirty city, albeit a, a colorful one and a diverse one, and a city in which it was still possible for you to go there as a young person and, and rent a loft in Manhattan or in Brooklyn and make a living as an artist. There was still the kind of white ethnic or kind of traditional ethnic groups. There were still a handful of Italians, Little Italy. There were still a few Irish in Hell's Kitchen. It was kind of the New York of the last gasp of the New York of the movie but it was in a lot of trouble. And obviously, as many people know, Giuliani was elected mayor. The police department changed. Whether you agree with their methods or not, the city became dramatically safer. And in becoming safer, it became a very different place. It became safer. It became more affluent. And then there was no more place for those, you know, certainly Harlem, for example, got, is being gentrified to the point where African-Americans can't afford to live there. Certainly the idea of being a young person and going there as an artist is not particularly realistic at this point. There are no Irish left in the house. There is no Hell's Kitchen. It's called Clinton now. The city dramatic, it was already, obviously, there was demographic changes that are going on, but in getting safer and better, it changed dramatically. I lived in Park Slope for a, a spell and there was a woman there who had lived there for, I don't know, 40 or 50 years that I would talk to. And she said that there used to be turrets like police turrets on the on the street corners to to keep like the peace and just just the amount of change that was happening in that town after Giuliani was elected it was crazy just to think about I mean you get you know you watch movies like um, the warriors and, and stuff like that that you know all the subway trains are are uh sp you know covered, with graffiti, covered yeah. with graffiti and everything I just don't I don't think people realize how rough of a town New York was at that time well, it also, that's all true. And as and Alex was there and you just didn't, 
You know, to, you want to, to speak honestly, white people did not go east of Avenue A unless they were buying heroin. The two safest blocks below 42nd Street were, you know, Mulberry Street in front of the Ravenite Social Club and Third uh, Street between A and B because that's where the Hells Angels had their clubhouse. And nothing happened on those blocks for obvious reasons. And the rest of the city was kind of a free place. Uh, 100 and whatever it was, 112th or whatever that stop was. Yeah. Yeah. But the other, like, the other issue, the other theme or the thing that was important to me, which is present, obviously, in the original, which is that sense of, 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 of the rule of law and the sacrifice that's necessary to bring that about, because we, this was written in 2019 and 2020, uh, it, it obviously becomes a, a, about racial issues and racial relationships. And what I pitched them was the idea that the Jimmy Stewart character is, you know, basically Barack Obama or is, is Cory Booker is a young college-educated African-American cop who comes to New York City and whose who's mission is to implement the rule of law equally to everyone, uh, regardless of what community they come from. And that only when everyone is equal before the law can, this, can the city truly be peace work and that the, the corrupt system, which has caused so much damage to all groups of people in that city, will only be brought down. The transition. When everyone is equal. And so the John Wayne character becomes a, you know, a white Irish American cop who has, for the right reasons, done the wrong things, who has, and I won't get into the story, but who has been exiled up to Harlem, who's the only guy that in a corrupt precinct who appears to give a fuck about the people of Harlem, but who goes about protecting them in extrajudicial means that we would consider police brutality. And it becomes a, you know, a meditation or a competition, a competition, a debate, an active debate between whether or not, what's the best way to resolve a corrupt system, to make a space within it by being the toughest guy there so you can protect the people who are immediately important to you. Or is it more important to honestly apply the law to everyone equally, even if that's painful for a period of time? And this is obviously compounded by the racial aspect, which is, and this is what was important to me, and this is my personal opinion, white working class guys, and that's the background that my family comes from, right? Scots, Irish, Italians, but particularly the Irish, in my opinion, you know, have, have made a bad deal, have allowed a bad deal to be made that they were essentially, in some cases, willing or used to do the dirty work of an economic system. It didn't treat them all that much better, but in return for the kind of social recognition of being white or being one rung higher on the economic ladder because they had city jobs, they were willing to oppress and to brutalize communities like the African-American community, Latino community, for richer white men who wouldn't let them in the front doors of their houses. And I think, speaking for myself, that it's a bad deal for everyone. And the protagonist of the picture, who is the Jimmy Stewart character, who's now a Barack Obama figure, it's a point he's trying to make that you may be doing good in the short term, that your heart may be in the right place, but your actions perpetuate a system that is in many ways brutalizing your community as much as mine, and neither of us are going to get better until we tell the truth, until everyone is equal for the law. I don't care if he's a bad guy or not. You can't hang him off a bridge because when you do that, you're just applying the same bad system for a temporary good and permitting or encouraging or allying yourself with forces that are doing much greater harm systemically. And that was my soapbox, and that's what I pitched them. And to their credit, that's what we wrote. And we'll see what happens to it. It's one of those things where, you know, people update movies, you remake classic movies. It usually is a bad idea. Sometimes it works. You know, like, for instance, we were talking about Robbo and the Seven Hoods. So, of course, they famously remake Ocean's Eleven, they just do the same thing, which is they get a lot of really famous, handsome men and women, and they have a good time in Vegas and tell funny jokes and do slapstick, you know, heists. And it works because they do it, you know, Steven Soderbergh is a better director than whoever they got to direct the first one. And there's no, there's no, there's nothing classic about, you know, Ocean's Eleven, except that it was the Rat Pack and it was of that era. So that makes sense. In this case, I think The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance is a movie that's, famous to people who love westerns or famous to film lovers or film critics it's not necessarily widely known print the legend yeah but the theme yeah the, yeah yeah but the themes are universal and i thought i believe i still believe we'll see what happens that they particularly apply to what's going on now that the rule of law being equally applied that 
the painful the pain that's necessary to change from a previous system to a better one that that's what, what i what i tried to write about and it really it was a privilege because it really was something that i would have paid them to write it kind of it drew on the experiences that, that you know that i had that out that that we had in, in the early 90s in new york it was a place and a time where i kind of first became a writer it was a place that i knew and had a lot of emotional resonance for me and it worked for the story and there were themes and issues that i had thought about all my life and because of what was happening culturally and politically at this moment in time the studio thought it was worth a shot and then and then the studio leadership got fired and now we'll see what happens <laughs> which is the other which is the how other works uh, you know script on most screenwriting assignments or sales just pray yeah. that your executive stays uh yeah the entire lifespan of the, of the project. Let's take a short break. Thanks for joining us on How I Got Greenlit. We'll be right back. And we're back. Thanks for joining us on How I Got Greenlit. Let's get back to the movie a little bit, and then I want to talk about more about how it relates to your adaptation, just because people haven't haven't read that, and I also don't want to give away all the goodies on it when they do see it eventually. You know, this was later in everybody's career. Ford was notoriously a cantankerous director to begin with, but I think he was especially kind of shitty to John Wayne on this set because the perception was as he was losing his luster as an A-list director. And the studio would only do it even at a truncated budget if John Wayne was in the lead. So for the entire shoot, Ford was relentlessly abusing John Wayne because he felt that, you know, his ego was bruised, that he needed John Wayne's stardom to keep his career going. So there was a bit of animosity there. Yeah, you're exactly right. That Ford was older. He had, a, of course, had a legendary career, but the business was changing. Uh, he, he was old and his previous pictures, his previous two pictures had not made money. And um, the power relationship had changed. He, you know, he basically essentially created John Wayne, right? And stagecoach. Um, and they had done a bunch of pictures together. And Wayne famously had always called him Mr. Ford on the set. Ford was in charge. And he, as you said, was the guy who was not, had kind of an Irish sense of humor, by which I mean, he tormented people for fun. <laughs> And uh, and a mean drunk. And he a, was a mean drunk. And, you know, he had yeah. served in the military during World yeah. War II and Wayne had not. Yeah. You know, he would te- he was, in a sense, he was a version of the character that Wayne played that they had created together. Yes. Because he had gone overseas and he had made documentaries for the Army and, and all these other things. And he was authentically, you know, a, a kind of Irish-American immigrant. And um, this, as you described, you know, at that point, the kind of, power balance had shifted. Wayne was basically one of the biggest stars in the world. And Ford was, was on the decline. And his response to that, of course, was to treat, was to treat Wayne even worse. And then Wayne lashed out like Woody Strode. Woody Strode has a part in the movie. Woody Strode, obviously, was a former professional football player, was an African-American actor. And this is the early 60s. So, you know, his character was treated not well. And Wayne would then take it out on Woody Strode. And Woody Strode was a professional athlete. And although John Wayne was a big man, you know, Ford had to keep Woody Strode from basically beating the shit out of John Wayne. There, you know, it was, there was a lot of, a lot of, and Jimmy Stewart was Jimmy Stewart. So there was a lot of things going on and it was all set against the backdrop of at that time, their personal stories aside, you know, 61 was the height of the Cold War. And it was not clear at that point in time, whether we were going to win. Uh, the Soviet Union, you know, had put Sputnik in orbit. Kennedy was the president and we weren't, we didn't know if we were going to win or not. And so the themes of the picture in terms of the rule of law versus, you know, kind of a rule that comes out of the barrel of the gun that struck people profoundly at that point in time. Or even the, the, the ambiguity, right? I mean, Ford Westerns up to that point. Yeah. They like searchers had sort of this well-rounded John Wayne character that on one hand was a genocidal maniac. And on the other hand, he was a hero. And it was a very sort of confusing message that a lot of America didn't get at the time. But talking about now how this resonates, what I saw was the legend versus the reality, right? And 
as we're delving into the social changes that we're going through, either inevitably or exacerbated by the current global situation, you're forced to talk about the founding fathers and America was built on genocide and all these harsh truths that an educated, nuanced person is forced to deal with in terms of, can I be proud to, to be an American and also know the story of Wounded Knee or all the sort of like original sin of slavery and all these horse trading sort of political things that had to happen in the 17, 1800s, 1900s and so on that have a really checkered history, let's just say. This film kind of takes it on directly and says, print the legend. Well, you know the rest of it. I went to Washington. We won statehood. I became the first governor. Three terms as governor, two terms in the Senate, ambassador to the court of St. James, back again to the Senate, and a man who, with a snap of his fingers, could be the next vice president of the United States. Well, you're not going to use the story, Mr. Scott? No, sir. This is the West, sir. When the legend becomes fact, print the legend. We acknowledge that some pretty legally shaky things went on in the early days, and maybe that was what was necessary to erase the crime from the Old West or whatever. But couldn't we say the same thing about today? I mean, I just watched the, I hadn't seen it, the John Adams miniseries and all. In my mind's eye of just a kid learning the basics of civics, you think that, quote, the founding fathers was like this gang of friends who are going to start a country <laughs> together. And, you know, you read their works and they, they hated each I mean, some of they, them. They really did not like each other. They hated each other. And that's what's great about Hamilton was they took those, you know, uh, those facts and sort of made it funny and made it fun, made it theatrical, but amazing to see the friction intellectually. I mean, these guys were calling each other out in public newspaper editorials about being toothless, stupid old men, whatever, you know, talking about Hamilton, criticizing President Adams, things like that. So, you know, it makes me feel better that our politics are pretty ugly now, but ever thus, but more in terms of our country growing out of its adolescence that mommy always does right. And it's like, well, no, you know, we can love America, but some pretty heinous things were done in our name. And we should acknowledge that too. I, I love Westerns. <laughs> Hollywood was kind of based on Westerns at one time. Those story, that, that type of story, you know, the exploration of the West and how the West was won and how America kind of grew into the country that it is today. And it's fascinating to me, but I, there is a sadness to the man who shot Liberty Valance. And also, I think, Chap, to your point, there's a sadness to the, you know, the Irish story you were talking about. There's all this, these through lines of just a general, you know, it's not just Wayne is getting, is older now and they're playing characters that sh probably should be 20 years younger and all that. It's just, it's a, it's kind it's a sad movie. It's sad to me. Yeah. And Wayne is, and Wayne is kind of a pathetic character. I mean, he, at the time was not into that ambiguity. You know, he, usually he was the through line or the, or the main character of these films, but he actually quote called it a tough assignment because he was a plot function. He wasn't the character, the main character. I just had to wander around in that son of a bitch, the character and try to make a part for myself. When someone suggested that, you know, the role was a complicated one full of ambiguity, he shot back, screw ambiguity, perversion and corruption masquerade as ambiguity. I don't like ambiguity. I don't trust ambiguity, which is funny. He would say that, but I would say his part in the searchers in this film are just about as ambiguous as you can get because he's, he's playing John Wayne and then showing us the cardboard uh, backdrop of what that means. Right. I don't think that I would call John Wayne pathetic, but. I can see. Really? He lost the girl and he became a drunk later in life. I'm not saying yeah, the person. It was, he, maybe the, the girl was clearly attracted to Jimmy Stewart, but he, 
he consciously sacrificed. Yeah, himself. And he, it was his choice. And that, it was his choice. Yeah. Yeah, and I would also say this, that John Wayne also serves, he gave himself up to have progress kind of roll over him, which is something that, another thing that I don't know if people are willing to do today. I don't know if someone's willing to the, to lay down for the greater good. Listen, John Wayne is an enormously complicated figure, and it is very easy now. John Wayne the human or John Wayne the cinematic icon? Well, well they're the same thing. Right. Oh. John Wayne's real name is Marion. He didn't like horses. He didn't serve in the military. But America <laughs> needed John Wayne. And, and he John said Wayne. the Indians had it coming. So no, just, that's not just, exactly what he said. Right. But but yes, but he held the opinions. They've dug up this this interview that he gave to Playboy. He was a you know, a sixty-two year old man in seventy-two or whatever. And they want to take his name off the airport. Yeah, but here's the thing. Yeah, like, crap, this yeah. is exactly what Liberty Valance is about. And this is exactly why I understand 100%. That, Wayne, that Wayne hated it, but that First off, John Ford, being a great director, got the performance that he needed yep. from a man who didn't want to give it because nope. Ford understood as the most famous line, right? When the truth becomes a myth, print the myth. They needed the myth. We needed John Wayne. But at that point in his career, and it, it's obviously famously present in The Searchers, Ford had begun to realize or had begun to reveal in his films the truth of it, the truth behind the myth, right? Like, Medical, yeah, his later years, it was chipping away at yeah. the legend that he built up the first 20 years. Right. So, and, you know, and, and so the searchers. Wayne was not a part of that. He was no, in the No, way. he was kicking and screaming. He, he didn't. Yeah, no way. He was America's, you know, first off, he was the biggest star in the world for 30 years or whatever. Like, literally, you know, they do the top 10 guys in the box office. It was Andy Rooney. And then it was, you know, you know, Mickey Rooney. Wayne was always there. And he was, that was exactly who he wanted to be. And Ford created him in that image. He found exactly the right man to play it. And America needed John Wayne right. for a long time. Right. But after a while, John Wayne, meaning the image, the idea that we all carry around in our head that I grew up on as a child of what it means to be a man, of what it means to be an American, of the sanitized mythology of the country... Once the frontier is pacified at whatever the cost, once we've whipped the Nazis, once we've, you know, become America, we have to come to terms with the reality of that myth. And John Wayne, the man, wasn't interested in revisiting the myth because he was, by that point in his life, he was John Wayne. God damn it. He was the man. And there was, he was brooking no discussion of that. The world did not change according to him, but it did. Yeah. It's why he is a great movie star and he has given great performances. The most famous recent image, and, and he, he's more self-aware, but obviously Clint Eastwood and Unforgiven makes a movie that comments not just on the story of that movie, but on every role he's ever played, right? Legend. Because he's commenting on the, on the reality of pointlessness of violence and it's being played yeah. by a guy who's most famous for the clever quips he says before he shoots people with a giant pistol. Exactly. Wayne yes. is giving performances as in The Searchers, as in Liberty Valance, where most powerfully as an artist, the story is using him as an icon, as a, as a piece of myth, as a famous myth, right? To comment on the cost of that myth, whether it's the pacification of the frontier and The Searchers where he, they start to talk about the genocide against Native Americans and they start to talk about the fact that once civilization occurs, you guys got to go do something else, right? Or in Liberty Valance, it's about the cost of building a society in which people can have railroads and churches and schools. Yeah. But that has been done through some, there's going to have to be some sacrifices. Well, you know, the sheepdog that keeps the, keeps the wolves away, you don't want them sleeping inside. I mean, they're not ready for civilization. In this particular case, you're talking about how are the natives treated and how are African-Americans treated and how are women treated and all of the things, the pieces of that. And well, that's, the, that's what we can talk about yeah. now. I don't even think, I mean, maybe I'd love to say John Ford was that like liberated, but I doubt you it. Go you go know? back and watch some of those John Ford movies. They're not as vanilla as you think they are just in the same way that if you watch before the code, like you watch the most early Warner brothers gangster pictures and Broadway oh, pictures. Yeah. They're pretty racy. Like there are oh, yeah. LBGTQ characters. There are people living in, like there's a lot of stuff going on before they tighten that down by the same token. Yeah. That wasn't the nor yeah. it, it wasn't like out in society, but it was played on the silver screen for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And you, 
in the same way, you know, Ford, he certainly matures as an artist and a filmmaker and there is a poignancy and maybe that's the right word. There's a poignancy to Liberty Valance because Ford is at the end. Wayne is clearly, you know, you're watching a debate on screen between the filmmaker who is going to show you the myth and his iconic star who's playing a character kind of against his will. It's a powerful character. It's a great movie in the sense that the themes behind it are very powerful. But as you pointed out, Wayne's not very happy about it because he starts to realize that he's the myth. Yeah, that he, right. That halfway through he realized, oh, I'm the, I'm the, I'm the, I'm the myth, right? Yes. And, and the other thing that, that, that broke my heart about it is, I mean, it's definitely got something on its mind. It's a good little genre movie for what it is. Sure. But the only visuals that I was like stunned by was the actual shooting. Like it had a very film noir, mysterious kind of. It is. It's a chiaroscuro lighting. Everything else looked like a bad TV show. Flat lighting. It's a, you could tell it was sets. It just was not very. You know. It's a very dark, like visual, like just in terms of light levels. It's a very dark picture. And but then it's not. But uh, yes, the the nighttime stuff where the shooting actually occurs yeah. is beautifully shot. I'm saying just like the talking scenes in the kitchen and the restaurant, whatever, it's all very flat and just looks like it's parts of it. looks like 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 Alfred Hitchcock. Well, yeah, but I'm saying it, 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 half of it looks like a film noir from a master and half of it looks like cheap TV from 1960. Let's take a short break. Thanks for joining us on how I got greenlit. We'll be right back. back you guys were talking about the lighting of the scene where the the actual a duel takes place i think the reveal is done masterfully the the reveal of uh of wayne in the shadows yeah it's really yeah and he's right it is it is shot and lit like a film noir like a shooting in a yeah, yeah, and a gangster, almost like a gangster or yes. a, a movie. Yeah, like a like a hit, like an assassin. Like all the lighting something. is coming from like interior, and it's yeah. bright. And there's like big, there's some big overheads that are are very dimly yeah. lit. And, and also Jimmy Stewart in the light, and 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 Wayne is in the dark. Right, he's in the shadows. Chap Taylor, thank thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure. I'm glad this was over the internet and I didn't have to stare into your eyes this whole time. I don't know if yes. I could have handled that even as a, a straight white male. Not many people can. Uh, it's a powerful I have been looking at your IMD pro shot this whole time and imagine. <laughs> Always a pleasure. I really appreciate you coming on. I think we have a varied audience of film lovers, film aspirants, all kinds of different things and your message of hard work and perseverance and putting yourself out there, whether or not the players in the specific situations remain for young filmmakers. It still boils down to working your ass off, putting yourself out there, meeting people and telling emotionally resonant stories. So I think that much remains and there still is hope for us in this crazy business that's going through a lot of changes right now. So And always be ready. <laughs> that's right. Always Keep your head on a swivel. Oh. Mm-hmm. Let's stay frosty out there. Let's stay frosty. Thank you for joining us for another episode of How I Got Greenlit. That was Chap Taylor. Yeah, thanks, Chap. Thank you again, Chap. I learned a ton. It's amazing to hear how everybody gets to where they're going. What was the most interesting part, do you think, of, of Chap's story? Fish eyeballs. Oh, the fit, that was my that was a part of my story. Yeah, but it kind of all tied in. Like he had a similar less wacky Jerry Lewis experience, but he was, was also it, it out was there. Jerry, it was Lucian. He was on the deep blue. He was in the, out in the brine. Did you ever want Wanted to be a pirate? Be yes. On, do you, no, no. To be on a fishing boat. Like, no, you know, one of those A&E shows. Nope. Not once did I see that. Like never since Jaws. I'm like, I'm not doing that. In fact, yeah, you know, like I, I like go fishing, but I get freaked out. Yeah. Hell yeah. Like often, it's like the most dangerous factory on earth yeah, it's the most and dangerous then job. it's moving 
No, it's no. Listen, just if it was just a building, it would be a building with lots of sharp things like cutting and chopping and freezing and like killing things, right? But but on top of that, it's moving, and yeah. it's like and you'd open a door and you would just fall off like the sixtieth floor. It's just it's the most dangerous building in motion. The most dangerous, the most dangerous building in motion. Yeah, like I think the we've two come up worst with a new script. Could, yeah. Anyway, I don't know how we got on that subject. That was the jokey answer. I thought it was a pretty incredible story, and it's an unfolding as we speak. He's got some really cool stuff coming up from what he told me, but didn't want to say. I've so, got to see this movie, so we'll have to have him back. I hope but this I movie definitely Paramount movie. When you're when you're ready, I'm ready. I will do a screening of Top of the World because I've I've never seen it, and I feel bad because it's my friend's movie. And even though he told me many times to not watch it, I'm I'm still curious about it. I, I will reiterate this for anyone out there. Just Google the box art and it's, we'll, yeah, it's when. the glory. It's the most glorious Photoshop <laughs> of nothing that happens in the story at all. Lots of all black. Right. Anyway, lots of well, explosion with, without further explosions. I'm Alex Collegian. Yeah, and I'm Ryan Gibson. And we have had the pleasure of hosting How I Got Greenland. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, everybody. Next Chapter Podcasts.